we have to hit a certain number of orders per month to take care of all of the associated costs of running the business. And once we break through that ceiling, then we'll start to be able to be profitable, provided that nothing unforeseen happens. myself on having one of the least formal podcasts <laughs> you know i'm always getting up to adjust the camera or something that's great it's kind of like uh the consequences of not having a studio you know it's overrated i mean spontaneity and life and everything i mean you know i don't know it, it'll keep things interesting hey Aaron, how are you i'm i'm good i'm i'm a little tired i've probably walked about 10 miles today <laughs> <laughs> this is the second time I've put you on camera. True. Yeah. The last time was in like 2012 or something. So it's been a while. Oh, man. I hope it wasn't as far back as 2012. Maybe not that far. Maybe like 2014. So you are uh, visiting Japan. You're on here. You're here on vacation. Yeah, you could call it that. Um, my mother, uh, for I don't know, a couple of years now, has wanted to hike the Kumano Kodo pilgrimage trail. And that's kind of what got us here and so we just finished that up the day before yesterday so we were on the trail for five days in the key peninsula and it was amazing and so this is kind of like kind of decompression time i guess urban decompression we are sitting in uh dontonbori dontonbori Bori, which is like kind of the fisherman's wharf of osaka <laughs> yeah i think that's about right but it's kind of uh, got this interesting neon, you know, like what would have been the future in the past. Which is increasingly kind of what Japan is looking like in a way. Because I feel like there's a certain weight of the 80s hanging over Japan right now. Just because of the kind of like the economic boom and all of the development that followed it. And how that has slowed down since the economy has slowed here. And now it's like, in a way... I, I mean, I still need to go to China, so I have to give you a big caveat that, like, you know, I don't really know what's going on in Beijing and what's going on in Shanghai and all that. But it seems like it seems to me that, like, China's way more future than the U.S. is right now. Or sorry, than Japan is right now. Food. All right. Finally. Uh, we got that size. All... It's there good. We go. Because that way, you know, it doesn't get warm. We can yep. get another one after That's cool. a while. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Come by. Come by. Hmm. But yeah, the, the the Japan future is also very nostalgic for me right now because I think the first time I came here here, I mean, it came to Japan was in 1993, and so uh, it reminds me of a future I was especially attached to as an early teenager, uh, and now it's like almost like the future has kind of caught up and superseded the, you know, like they're, they're, like there's a newer future in, in different places now. Newer future is like an incredible term. <laughs> it needs to be on a t-shirt at least. Newer future. No more old future. <laughs> Don't forget to eat. I've actually eaten today and I know you haven't. <laughs> Could always get time back in the editing. I don't do enough exercise to justify eating. Oh, stop. Everyone has to eat. Otherwise, your brain doesn't work. Okay, so if, for those who don't know, as I mentioned the first time I had Aaron Shin on camera, he's one of my design mentors. One of the people who actually taught me how to be a designer, taught me a lot of the 
technicalities of design, as well as design thinking. So I owe this podcast in part to Aaron Shin, who, as a child, I'm not. I'm going to keep going here. I'm going to steamroll you. Who, I mean, when I was in university, I was I was asked by Michael Bocieri, uh, "How do you rate Aaron Shin as a artist or designer?" And I was like, "He's the best I know." I'm embarrassed. And I have to say, I don't remember teaching you anything, but if I may have been a useful resource at some time, I'm, I'm happy about that. Do you remember that fractal design terrain generator application? KPT Bryce. There you go. You demonstrated that to me once. That shit was so awesome. <laughs> There's like this whole, uh, I don't want to call it era, but a whole like suite of art tools that just don't exist anymore that I know of. But it's it's like we went from uh, canned, like KP2 Bryce is very canned, right? Like it, it's a tool that has an incredibly specific outcome. And we went from like KPT Bryce to like, which was at its time, like in the early 90s, it was a breakthrough because it made, uh, you know, like procedural textures and things like that really accessible. Like where you could just kind of like drag and drop like, oh, okay, here's a, you know, a, a, a texture that would like map different kinds of terrains onto different heights of a depth map. And so you could have like, you know, convincing like valleys full of greenery and like rock in the middle of mountains and like snow-capped peaks. Like just, you could just slap it on and it would look fairly realistic. And now it's like we've gone from these like super specific, easy to use tools to like Houdini, right? Which are like just... To me, Houdini is like is like magic. It's there's too much. It's far too deep for me to even touch at this point in my career because I actually started out working with these really high level tools that are very specific and have very specific outputs. And like now, all of the cool 3D shit is just like totally inaccessibly complex for me. You might be interested in checking out something like Unity, which Unity. I used to work for. Oh uh, yeah, Unity's so cool. I mean, um, you know, when we were using Bryce to make terrains, we had to hit the render button and wait for a very long time to see the output. Yeah. And Unity basically so, doing real-time rendering. Totally. So Totally. I love that. There's a, there's a studio, maybe it's one person, I'm not exactly sure because I haven't met them yet, called Cloaking uh, in L.A. that does really awesome, like, underground party visuals in the Unity engine. Oh. Um, they have a really cool, like, kind of gritty, kind of vintage cyberpunk black and white aesthetic that's kind of rad. Um, and, like, it's just it's inspiring to see people using Unity to, like, do non-game things and to use it for, like, you know, more kind of experiential or, or audio-triggered or kind of VJ-oriented applications. There's a guy in, in Saigon named Crazy Monkey. And he used to have this thing called Crazy Monkey Box, but now he's started this other thing called the Box Collective. Hmm. So it's more than just him. It's him and a bunch of uh, apprentices, as far as I know. All right. And I really want to uh, get him on here. And he's been doing real-time visualizations. I don't think he uses Unity for any of it, but he's been doing... I mean, a lot of his final output ends up being in club nightclubs and stuff, you know. But um, it's all very artsy and gl- uh, glitchy and cyberpunky hmm. a lot of stuff he's he's a little heavy a little uh, like a 
Hote. Do you know Hote? Uh, like the the fat Buddha. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he kind of has that vibe going on, mm. and he plays with that. Mm. Like he will use himself as a Buddha statue in some of his arts. It's kind of weird and funny, but also he used to paint flying penises. Okay. Like that was kind of his motif. So <laughs> I got a little off track there. Aaron is, uh, I, I assume, your main output, your main, other than being a father now since the last time we talked, mm. uh, you spend most of your time on your tea company, yeah. August Uncommon Tea, August.LA. No, just August.LA. Yeah. There, there's no, we actually do have a couple of other, we have some, a few dot coms like AugustUncommonTea.com and AugustT.com, but uh, we, we mostly use August.LA just because it's short. And you guys are based in L.A. Right. Though L.A. itself is probably a country abbreviation, right? Not the city. Exactly. It's it's Latvia. But nobody in L.A. knows that and nobody cares. So it works for us. That's hilarious. I mean, it, it might confuse some Latvians, but I don't think anybody is interested in RT in Latvia. Yet. Yet, yeah. Yet. <laughs> I want to import your tea to Japan. That would be amazing. Is that I, something I'm allowed to do? I've heard, well, okay, as an individual, you can definitely get away with it. We do have customers here, but if we were to do it on a commercial scale, I understand that the um, the restrictions are very intense. Lots of paperwork. I mean, of course, because like any island, um, there are very tight controls on agricultural imports because the risks are extremely high of, you also, know. Also, they don't want you competing with their domestic tea production, probably. That may be the case, but it's, you know, I mean, it's like they're terrified of like, you know, of microorganisms that can be destructive to local crops or, you know, anything that like shouldn't be here. Invasive species, invasive pests, all that stuff. So uh, they're very, very careful. Um, so we, we're really not doing any international business yet. We're, yet we're completely focused on the U.S. at this point for a variety of just practical, boring reasons. How's business going? It's great. Um, we're in we're in a bit of a period where I'm kind of white knuckling it a little bit. So, ever since, let me give you a little background. Uh, we had everything click. Like finally, the gears, the, the the growth gears meshed in September 2018, and we finally managed to find uh, a way to build our sales and grow the company profitably through paid social media. And we've tried to do that before, maybe two other times, but it never quite, we never quite had the know-how or the right people working on it. We finally found the right team. And then ever since then, it was like 20% growth a month, 25% growth a month, 50% growth a month. And so like on average, we, we over the last year have grown about 20% per month, which is insane uh, and very hard to keep up with. Uh, we've had to like, you know, we went from having zero employees, uh, just a couple, well, sorry, just, well, Gina and I are the full-time founders, so no external employees, to uh, having, you know, uh, having now four with a fifth coming on, uh, like, you know, Monday, I believe, um, and potentially like three more in the next four or five months. Um, we went from shipping, geez, I don't know, maybe maybe 250 orders a month to, I think, peaking at 3,000 orders last month. Um, so we moved from our loft to an 800-square-foot dedicated space to now a uh, 
a 2,300 square foot warehouse, and then we just leased another 1,700 square foot warehouse in the same center. And like, you know, it's just going to keep escalating from here. Um, so it's, uh, it's been growing a lot, but the thing that we haven't yet achieved is profitability. And so, uh, that's really the fulcrum that we're at right now, where we're just waiting for the weather to get a little colder so we can grow a little faster and hopefully... If and you think go- that tea sales will increase during winter? Yeah, well, that's it's. I mean, I'm sure that it's not a unique effect to the U.S., but uh, in the U.S., there's definitely a really strong seasonality with tea, where you know you have pretty much from fall through spring, you have good, uh, good kind of public interest in tea, and people are interested in tea, uh, particularly hot tea, because that's really all we. I mean, you know, we sell loose tea, and most people make that hot. Many iced tea drinkers don't brew their own tea they buy ready to drink tea so even though our tea makes insanely good iced tea it's not uh you know our customer is not exactly somebody who's like brewing iced tea to drink at home or anyway um so our kind of like the our high efficiency seasons are when it's cold outside so we're looking you know now it's in mid-September, and by the end of this month, we're hoping that things are moving really efficiently and we can start growing very quickly again. When you tell me that you're selling, doing a uh, 3,000 orders a month, but you're not yet profitable, that sounds like weird to me. Mm. So can you explain uh, for our viewers out there and, and to me, like... The mechanics of yeah, that? Yeah, mechanics of Yeah, so, well, essentially, like, we've found that, uh, you know, we have a variety of fixed costs, right? Like, you know, the cost of the product, the cost of the, well, actually, sorry, that's a, the, the, the product cost is a proportion of sales. Uh, we have our other kind of costs that are related to shipping every order. So the labor involved in packing and shipping a product, uh, the average cost of goods, our fixed costs like rent and like, you know, founder salaries and stuff like that. Um, and then also another you know, variable percentage cost of every sale is how much we have to pay to acquire customers. So like, you know, basically how efficient our ads are. And so uh, we found that like, that we are, that in inefficient months, we grow, you know, like inefficient, meaning our ads aren't very effective because people aren't very interested in tea. We don't grow super, super quickly. But in efficient months, like when the weather's cold and people are interested in tea, we can grow very profitably. So really, it's like what we're looking for is hitting a point where our profit rises faster than our costs do. Because, of course, every time that you uh, that you have to order more product, you have to, you know, you have to spend money for inventory. You have to spend money for advertising. You have to spend money for labor to pack and ship the stuff. You have to spend money on shipping uh, spend money on packaging, etc. And in an ideal world, as volume goes up, all of those costs become slightly lower because you're buying in higher volume. You take advantage of economies of scale, um, but you know you also have to continually watch things very carefully. So in our modeling, uh, we hit the tipping point in the next couple of months if we're able to hit our volume projections. So you know we have sales projections where like after we hit a certain figure of sales per month, if we don't increase our existing costs uh, proportionately, like if they if everything stays the same as it is right now, we'll start to become profitable. So anyway, it's it's 
I apologize for the meandering, no, 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 no. rambling discussion, but um, but really what it comes down to, if you were to do the super soundbitey version, is that we have to hit a certain number of orders per month to take care of all of the associated costs of running the business. And once we break through that ceiling, then we'll start to be able to be profitable, provided that nothing unforeseen happens. And I guess provided that you don't try to acquire customers at a greater ad spend than you currently are doing. That's that's the risk, yeah. And, you know, if you talk to people uh, who are selling you the ads, they'll, they'll encourage you to kind of, like, take the long view and accept less profitable results and all that stuff. But, I mean, it's, it'd be very, very easy for us to run out of runway by uh, not insisting on very efficient advertising. So, But at some point, you could presumably stop advertising uh, through paid ads and just remarket to your existing customer base, right? We'd have to reach a really tremendous scale to be able to do that. Um, how, how much do you think advertising encourages existing customers to place another order? I think it's very significant. Um, the the If you look at our at the breakdown of our ads, and, and, and I think in any direct-to-consumer brand you will see that the remarketing uh, is massively more efficient than the prospecting audience. So prospecting um, is what we'll call cold cold audience. So somebody who's never heard of the brand before, who may or may not be interested, um, but prospecting is, is usually fairly inefficient in that you have to show the ad to a lot of people before somebody makes a purchase. But for people who have previously purchased from you, Especially if you're in, if you're selling a product that's a consumable, like, you know, like tea, where, you know, you drink it and then it's gone and then you need more. It's not a durable good where you might buy it once or twice a year or once every several years. Um, you know, there, there's a great opportunity to remarket to your existing customers because they're the ones that know you and know your product and they definitely will know if they want more. So we typically see, I mean, at, at present, I think we're seeing about five times the conversion rate for remarketing versus prospecting. That's a lot of can you, can you say that one more time? So we're, we're seeing about a, a 5x efficiency oh, between okay. prospecting and remarketing. So, But the thing about remarketing, though, is that it doesn't work unless you already have a lot of customers. So, you know, at our current stage, I think we've got, I don't know, um, we're, we're in the... We're probably in the like mid five figures in terms of like our customer count. And so, you know, remarketing to that people, uh, to that, sorry, to that audience is not, uh, you know, there's just not all that many people. I mean, a mid five figures is not that large when we're talking about a remarketing audience. That's like mid five figures is 50,000. Is yeah, that? I mean, yeah. you know, in that general range. So like, you know, if we had, if we had a customer base of, you know, 10 million customers, uh, we would be, we would have a lot more material to work with. Material. I apologize. That's totally, that's an inappropriate metaphor. But we we would just have a a much bigger audience to remarket to. Right. You know, so at at some later stage, we might be able to see a lot more uh, growth and a lot more reliable income through remarketing. But right now, you know, we still are a very early stage company. Um, You know, we, we definitely utilize it, but it's uh, but the thought of turning off prospecting is way, 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 way down the road. Why did you guys get into the tea business? Because we noticed a gap 
Um, and that gap, it was that uh, basically Gina, my partner, and I both used to travel a lot in our previous career. So I used to be a design consultant at IDEO. Um, and I did a lot of work in Japan, uh, and other countries and Gina used to be a French professor and did a lot of, uh, of research work and used to actually lived in Paris for a long time. And so, you know, I mean, we're kind of just culinary people. We, you know, travel through our stomachs in a way and are always looking for exciting things to eat and drink. And tea was not an exception. So, you know, whenever we traveled, we would be like, oh, this tea looks cool. And we'd bring stuff home and we ended up smuggling like quite a bit of tea home in our travels. And we had a great big closet full of amazing tea. And it wasn't until we settled in Los Angeles and stopped traveling so much that we, uh, we, we finally ran out of all of that tea that we had bought overseas. And after that point, we were like, huh, okay, well, we can't go to France. We can't go to Tokyo. You know, we need to like get some tea, uh, from let's, let's just try buying tea online. So we ordered some stuff from company A and ordered some stuff from company B and then company C and company D. And like, we're consistently disappointed. Like everything we were buying just felt a little bit unsophisticated, a little bit low quality. So just... It's... So you weren't buying French brands or Japanese brands. You were buying U.S. brands? Well, or... exactly. Yeah, we were buying tea from North American companies. And uh, we, I mean, we were buying the things that were accessible to us. Uh, a big reason why we didn't want to buy the brands that we loved and were accustomed to is because of outrageous shipping. I mean, you know, like it, it just seems stupid to pay 30 euro to ship 15 euro worth of tea from Paris to L.A. Like, just, it's, it's just crazy. So it just didn't seem practical. Um, so that's why we were like, okay, let's see if we could buy something from a more affordable domestic company. And we bought tea from the U.S. and Canada. And it was just deeply disappointing. And um, and that's when the light bulb went on. We were like, oh, shit, we, I think we know something that other people don't. Uh, and that is that tea could be more sophisticated and interesting and kind of novel and exciting and delicious. Uh, because tea tends to fall into two big categories in the U.S. It tends to be either like really uh, kind of very inexpensive grocery store tea or, well, maybe there are more than two categories. So very inexpensive grocery store tea, like everybody's heard of like Lipton and like, you know, uh, brands like that. And then there's lots and lots of like health teas, I guess, or functional beverage teas, like you know, anybody who goes to Whole Foods has seen these brands. There's a wall of them. There are teas for every imaginable ailment or discomfort or, you know, health need. Do you think um, any of those actually work, like, as Oh, advertised? sure, sure. I mean, you know, they're, I mean, you know, a lot of them are herbal, herbal medicine. But, I mean, it's it was just clear before we started the company that that space was already very saturated. You know, I mean, it's like, how could we possibly compete with brands that have clinical studies that, you know, prove that this ingredient has this effect? And, you know, I mean, it's just not it's not something we're passionate about either. I mean, you know, we like I mean, we think all tea is healthy, uh, so we don't need to go beyond that. I mean, we just wanted to make a tea that is delicious. And then I guess the third category is the ultra traditional kind of like, you know, um, teas that belong to another culture. Because, you know, in a way, you could say the U.S. doesn't really have a tea culture. Um, we threw you, that one into the, into the ocean, into the harbor, <laughs> right? right? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's true. I think, I think that the, the Boston Tea Party is like a great 
cultural schism. I mean, it was the time when America rejected tea and rejected colonial power. And, you know, tea, you know, I don't think people actually think about it this way. But I mean, for a period, tea was unpatriotic and actually like contraband. You know, so and people were smuggling tea after the Boston Tea Party. But I mean, th that was the time when the U.S. went from being a tea drinking nation to a a coffee and chocolate nation. So anyway, uh, the, and the, I guess the third big category that I think about is uh, is the ultra traditional high end. So, I mean, tea comes from China. I mean, there is no bones about it. Like China has a like a easily three thousand year old tea culture. Like a lot of the finest tea in the world is grown in China. And like, you know, there's just like Chinese tea culture is ancient and beautiful and amazing. And like, you know, that's just one example. I mean, there's also an amazing Japanese tea culture and amazing, uh, you know, like Central European and North African tea culture and amazing British tea culture. Uh, but none of them are American. But so there are brands who are catering to bringing these these foreign, at least to an American perspective, tea cultures to the U.S. and to do that in the most authentic, high-quality way possible. That's also not us, because that's, you know, that uh, was, when we started our research, it became clear to us that that's very intimidating to a lot of people, um, because it feels like you have to have a very high degree of skill and sophistication and knowledge even to be able to enjoy that kind of beverage. So, you know, it was, it, it, so that was kind of what led us to find our direction within tea to make it about almost to, to take inspiration from like cocktails and from craft beer and from wine and from, you know, and, and other categories of beverage that have been reinvented and made exciting, which tea has not. Tea is still sleepy. So uh, to give you guys an example of, of August uncommon tea, you see, uh, if you look through there, actually, I'm going to just throw it up here. I'm going to show an example of your website right here, what you're selling right now. Okay. All right. Okay? Sounds good. So it's scrolling past this right now. Okay. And you're going to see a lot of, I'm going to say complex flavor profiles. Like, you're going to see words like bourbon. You're going to see words like deep forest. I don't know. You, you know, you have a lot of emotive words used, a lot of flavor mm. profile words used that you do see when you talk about wine or or craft beer we say hints of sure or sure notes totally of totally 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 nutmeg right for instance right well and so like uh i'll give a few specific examples of like some of the blends that like really i think define us in a way we have a, for a tea company we have a really small number of blends um right now it's around it's less than 30 and they uh like our most popular blend is called Low Country and it's a black tea with bourbon and burnt sugar notes and it's wildly popular it's a really strong powerful breakfast tea and it's got it's it, it's not an english breakfast it's not an earl grey and in fact we don't even sell those teas we don't make them at all because you can get them anywhere right um but you know low country has a kind of like a kind of magic about it that I can't really define, but that's a, a crowd pleaser. So to go to the other end of the spectrum, like one of the most exotic weirdo teas that we have is called the Black Lodge, which is uh, a a sweet black tea with uh, a kind of a, a almost a truffle note to it. It's a smoky truffle tea that so has a very kind of like you know 
it has olive leaf in it and kind of campfire notes. So it's, it even tastes a little bit like percolator coffee. And it's inspired to a certain extent by, you know, by the Twin Peaks TV series. And it's, it's completely and totally bizarre. And it's definitely a polarizing love it or hate it kind of tea. And the people who love it are totally fascinated by it and drawn in. And, it, you know, it's for like people who love peaty scotch and, you know, just kind of like very dank, <laughs> uh, intense flavors. Uh, but it's not for everybody. And so, you know, we always try to balance... Uh, you know, between having some novel crowd pleasers, like future classics, we call them, because, of course, still nobody's ever heard of us, um, future classics, and also the, some very exotic kind of, you know, unusual things that you could, you know, that you will never taste anywhere else, that, that there's no map for. What's the process of developing a flavor? Well, so I'm going to have to speak for Gina because this is really her domain. And, uh, and you know, I'm very lucky to be able to work with her and to have her as my partner because she has an amazing ability to imagine the way things will taste before she tastes them. She has, uh, you know, she has a sense memory and a sensory imagination that I don't have. So uh, that's an incredible advantage in terms of being able to come up with successfully good tasting blends. So that we actually don't have a massive amount of trial and error because uh, so many of her ideas uh, turn out to be delicious. Um, so anyway, so I'll talk about the process more mechanically, though, wow. because like in a way. So I have to talk about it in terms of like what, you know, Gina's special ability because she is our kind of like master flavor engineer. Well, actually, no, our, our, our flavor creator or our, our blend master or whatever you want to call it. Gina has a, a, a background in smells. Well, right. And so taste and smell are kind of tertiary. No, they're massively linked. Like most, most of what we consider flavor is actually aroma. Um, through it's called retronasal olfaction. So, like when you chew food, you actually smell it while you're choosing it. Anyway, it's it's a thing. Did you guys know that? <laughs> I, I didn't know that. It, you're, you're smelling it through the back of your through through the, the the tubes in the back of your mouth that reach your olfactory bulb. Anyway, um, but yeah, when Gina was a, a a little girl, she wanted to be a nose, like a, a perfume uh, uh, blender. So it's kind of. Uh, and she's also, you know, had periods where she was very much involved in poetry and she studied literature. And so in a way, being the kind of like chief creative officer for August, she brings together the poetry and the olfactory and the flavor, like all of those sensibilities together in one thing. And it's absolutely her favorite part of the job is the creation of the flavor and the creation of the language that describes it. Because she doesn't just do the flavor. She also is the one who names the teas, writes the flavor notes, um, you know, and talks basically like is the one who kind of gives them life. So so what do you do? Uh, I don't do anything. <laughs> that can't be true. That <laughs> no, no, can't no. be true. No, no, no. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute because right. I still I want to stay on topic. Um, so the process is... Basically, Gina has her her flavor dream. She communicates it to our blending partner. So we, we work with a company in Germany who uh, it does all of the actual production of our tea. So they source the ingredients. They test them to make sure they're free of, uh, you know, large amounts of pesticides and heavy metals. And, you know, they test for purity and all that stuff. Um, and then they actually do the 
blending a combination of those ingredients uh, to our specification and then ship us the finished tea. So in a way, like they are kind of the kitchen and Gina is kind of the head chef. So the way that it typically works is that she will dream up a flavor concept. So we send it over to our German partner and then they do the work of translating that into a, a manufacturable blend using the ingredients that they have access to. And then it, then it's a process of iteration. So they send us a first draft, like an initial hand-blended sample. And then, you know, it'll come to us. We taste it. We send them back notes and kind of revision notes. And then they we continue to iterate until we either kill the concept or find something that is ready to be released. And uh, we have we probably do about 10 to 20 blends for every one tea that we put out. So we have an enormous library of unreleased blends that are just kind of like waiting to, you know, have their day. Um, but we try to be very judicious about what we release because, uh, well, there are a variety of reasons, but a lot of tea companies have 300, 500 different blends available. And it's just, it's totally overwhelming. Yeah, you get the customers are going to have a paralysis of choice or something exactly. at that point. Yeah, I think choice paralysis is a real problem in tea. And, and nobody needs 300 or 500 tea blends. Like, that's just ridiculous. We don't need to have every single blend available in like five different base teas. Like white, the white version of this, the black version of this, the oolong version of the, no, it's just not necessary. You know, I think a lot of tea companies fall into the trap of like, making every imaginable variation of something. And then, uh, you know, the thing that would happen if we did that is if we had like 200 varieties, stuff would start to get old. And tea that is not fresh does not taste amazing. It tastes kind of dull. Except for poor. Well, poor is different. Poor is, poor, poor is the only tea that gets better as it ages. Do you have any teas that are based on pure, poor? Not currently. We've had one in the past, but not right now. So you're mostly doing black and green? Well, we do black, green, herbal, and we have a little bit of oolong. We might bring in more, but um, black teas massively outsell everything else, followed by green teas, followed by herbal teas, and then followed by that are single-origin teas, like our unblended teas. How many people are making tea lattes with your drinks versus just drinking it straight? I Honestly, I couldn't answer that question. Um because it's so hard to know exactly how people are are consuming the product once they kind of get it into their home. Um, our main customer is like the individual. So, you know, I mean, because we're a direct-to-consumer brand, um, you know, we have customers all over the country and uh, they make it however they like it. So some people will enjoy it with milk. Some people will enjoy it straight. Some people make it iced. Some people make it hot. So it's... um. You know, it's, it's probably time for us to do another big, gigantic survey to try to learn more because uh, the last time we did one was a few years ago. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to check in with people and just hear about what they're doing with RT um, because we really we have a very specific process that we recommend. But we also encourage people to drink the tea however it delights them. We don't want to have a really restrictive, dogmatic approach because everyone's palate is different. I remember the last time we talked uh, about August. I mean, basically, the last time we did this, we did this interview, and I was at your apartment, right. and you gave me like a sample box. You went into great detail about how you've got very specific instructions about which temperature and for how long, and you were selling kettles that could boil it, or not boil, but 
raise the water temperature to very specific degrees and you had timers. Is that still part of your business? It's still the case, absolutely. But um, I think it's important to, to say that that's not the price of admission. That's something for the people who want to go deeper. Um, and we... Like we sell very, very few kettles, scales, etc. Like all of those, um, all those tools that are uh, for the kind of like the person who wants to really control every variable and wants to really optimize tea and get it to be like the exact, most consistent, perfect flavor every time. That's that's a minority of people. The majority of people just make tea with whatever means that they're comfortable with, and that's okay for us because as long as they're happy, we're happy. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to say, here's what we think is optimal. And, and so part of that does come into education where, you know, we talk about which, uh, the, you know, what are the big variables in tea drink, in tea brewing and what are the things that could be affecting whether your tea is bitter or too weak or too strong. Um, you know, all of those, uh, there aren't that many of them. It's really just time, temperature, uh, the uh, the ratio of tea to water, um, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Uh, if you if you have a total handle on those things, then you can make your tea taste however you want. How okay. about the type of water? Well, so that's another. Uh, honestly, that is another very significant factor that it doesn't get enough attention. But it's it's that's a hard one to change, especially most people in, don't have a lot of control over their water source, right? Exactly, and it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of people. You know, to say, oh, well, you know, your municipal water is not good for brewing tea. So buy bottled water. It's just like it, it can be it, it's kind of a can of worms. But, you know, honestly, like some cities, for example, my mother uh, has a house in Florida where <laughs> where the entire municipal water system is treated with reverse osmosis. Oh, and reverse that osmosis, good, right? Well, it reverse osmosis makes very good tasting drinking water, but it makes terrible tea. Awful, awful tea. I cannot stand it. It's and the reason, uh, as far as I can tell, is that reverse osmosis has very few minerals in, left in the water because it strips so much out of the water in its natural state both the good and the bad, the things that, you know, that make bad aromas or, you know, that dirty the water, but also the good minerals that you might find in spring water or in more, you know, more natural, less processed water. Um, And so what you get in tea made with reverse osmosis water is a very thin kind of brittle, like bitter and weak flavor profile. It's, you know, I, I think it's awful. I think it's like one of the worst things. The only thing worse is uh, distilled water, I haven't had tea made with stinky well water. I mean, I've definitely had some stinky well water in my life, but uh, it, it, like in the past. But but you know, it it's it can be pretty bad. Um, so you know, and also some people have reverse osmosis systems in their home that they've gone to tremendous expense to install and maintain. And you know, it's you know, it's kind of hard to ask somebody, okay, don't just don't use that for tea. Um, but you know, the people who are really, uh, hardcore about optimizing the tea and making it taste amazing will find another way. Um, so it, it's not like usually the first thing that comes to mind for me, water quality, but it's, it is, it, it's critical water. I mean, tea, tea is 98% water, I think. So the way the water, the composition of the water is super critical to having good tasting tea. Get, uh, get a new subscriber. 
Do it. D <laughs> X. Where's the X on this thing? <laughs> oh, subscribe. Ah, yay! Konnichiwa. <laughs> Konnichiwa. <laughs> Making connections, man. What did you do? Oh, man. This interview is, this this whole... interview is going places. <laughs> uh, well, we're having a conversation about tea. It's a nice. Nice. What are you smoking there? I hope marijuana. This is not marijuana. I hope. What is it? This is some some. I don't know some weed. Not weed. Just something leaf. I don't know. It could be anything. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. No. No. I drove it. Okay. I guess let's continue. Let's start with a kampai. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Kampai. I want to kampai with you guys. Can I kampai with you guys? Or if you buy a beer, I guess. Yeah, I can buy. <laughs> or if you don't want to. I mean, it's a little off-topic for the video, but oh. it is, you know, interesting in some weird way. Mm-hmm. How you think? But we only have two microphones. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> Man, I gotta go back to the old seat. I thought this was gonna be better framing. We're gonna, we're gonna have to get another mic. Kono interview no ato de. Okay. Ima wa shikoto osu. All right, all right. This is a. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. No, daijoubu, daijoubu. Omoshiroi Well, we may be uh, joined by uh, somebody or or not. Who knows? A visitor. A visitor. A new challenger arrives. Hey, now that I moved, the, I put the mic in totally the wrong spot at the mm. again. I'll stay close. There we go. So, our time is short because shit's about to get party over here, it seems. So, what should we talk about next? Uh, well, what are you doing with, if Gina's doing all the creative work and I thought you were a creative oh, okay, person, okay. Yeah, what, yeah, what are you right, doing? That's right. I kind of left that hanging. Um, so, I'm, uh, I guess in terms of like roles, Gina is the kind of like the artist and I'm the engineer. Um, so, I handle the company operations um you know like all of the kind of like getting things made on time i handle like i oversee the financial part of the business um and all of the kind of like the the business modeling which you know i my training is not in that so i have a very capable person who does that with me um but you know but like all of the 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 mechanisms of the business I'm kind of managing in one way or another. The other part is that I'm kind of overseeing a lot of the um you know the ways in which we communicate with people in a very general sense like I'm kind of like designing the customer journey um and thinking about like you know how we can engage with people more and I mean I guess the other part that's not inconsequential is that um, I'm responsible for all of the packaging, graphic design, visual design, website design, product photography, like all of the kind of visual touch points of the brand are, are, are mine. And, you know, that's, I, it's easier for me to overlook that because that's what my training is in. I'm a, you know, kind of like all, my professional career before starting August was in product design and graphic design. And so like, you know, I kind of take for granted that I do those things. Um, and my father's a, a professional photographer. Um, and so I, you know, the photography is also kind of something that's easy to overlook for me, but, um, but that's also a big part of what I do. Um, although hopefully 
uh, we're going to get to the point very soon where I can actually start delegating those responsibilities to people who don't also have to worry about running the business because... Which um, would you rather do, run the business or to, to take care of the visual aspect? It's uh, a great question. I mean, I, um, I am content to be the person that creates the conditions for beautiful things to happen. I don't have to be the one who makes the beautiful things happen. Um, and this is something that I kind of learned, you know, being a, a, a project leader, design lead person at IDEO. It's like, I don't have to be the one who designs. I, I It's much more important for me to um, to get things into the world and to have things in the world be satisfying and beautiful. And that doesn't, I don't have to be at the center of that at all. I love to do that when I can. And God, I wish, like, I follow so many people on Instagram who are like, uh, you know, who are young graphic designers or, you know, typographers, lettering people, street artists, etc., painters, sculptors. I want to be all of those people. I, I like desperately want to like be the, the, a kind of like solo creator who just like only cares about aesthetics and making something beautiful. But at the same time, like that's just not my world right now. So I have to, uh, I have to really focus. Um, so right now in the world of August, it's... Uh, Speaking of focusing. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the world of August, it's incredibly important that I'm, uh, that I'm getting out of the way and that I'm getting, you know, hiring people who can do what I can do, but without my time constraints. So, yeah. It's hard to... Uh, I have to let go. Let go. It's hard to, to let, let go. go and uh, trust people that someone's going to do a good job. And sometimes, like one of the things uh, I've felt a lot in the past is the time it would take me to describe what needs to be done. I could have just done it. Right, but you only have to do that once. Mm. That's the thing, because like you know, it's uh, when you train somebody thoroughly. And you really, uh, you you really give somebody the tools to do the thing that you've been doing yourself. Then you can, you can rely. You know, if you have somebody that you can rely on, they'll be able to do it again and again. And that's the magic of actually delegating. All right, <laughs> I can tell you're all, you're already having a very good night. What's your name? I, I'm Leo. Leo. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Thanks. Good to see you, guys. Good to see you too. All right. All right. Take care. Take care, man. Bye, bye, Leo. Leo, he was cool. He was fun. I would hang out with him. I seriously would. If we weren't doing an interview right I, yeah, now, I feel like I feel like we're being jerks. Then, well, we're doing something else. We're I know. Busy. I know. It's like we're I'm busy. sorry that we already had uh, something going on. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just happy that you that you're letting me record this, anyways, because I don't know how intrusive intrusive it might be. You know, for me, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm happy to hang out with you. So yeah. if this is the price of hanging out with you, I'll, oh, I'll happily shit. pay it. <laughs> you know, part of the reason why I'm doing this is um, there's been so many times I've hung out with a friend. And I've just been so in love with the conversation we had. Mm. But there's no record of it. Right, right, right. You know? Well, it's, it's ephemeral. Yeah. Mm. So here we are hanging out and there's some kind of, you know... Uh, record of it hmm. there's a lot of misinformation out there about tea there's a lot of confusing contradictory information out there and we try to be like a very kind of sane 
stable, understandable source of info that doesn't have a lot of like, you know, weird traditions or mysticism or, you know, that sort of thing. You introduced me to Neil Stephenson. Neil Stephenson. Okay. I, yeah, I don't know if it's Stephenson or Stephenson, but... Uh, I'm not sure. The cyberpunk author. The cyberpunk turned historic slash cryptographic author. Yeah, he kind of does it all. And um, in Cryptonomicon, there's a whole paragraph or chapter about the temperature at which tea should be brewed. No way. Yeah. I didn't know that. The of main character was having a uh, meeting with a Chinese gentleman who was complaining that everybody boils their tea and brews their tea at boiling temperature and that that is incorrect. I mean, that's kind of... Would you like me to comment on that? I mean, it's just kind of weird that this this uh, book about a data haven... Essentially, Cryptonomicon is a, a story about a data haven. Mm. And it has this whole section devoted to uh, the musings of how people brew tea incorrectly. I think Neil Stevenson is the master of the info dump. And it's like it's part of a, a it's part of his writing style that like he has these massive digressions that go deeply into the intricacies of things that are not really related to the central story or only tangentially. And they're part of his fascinating way of explaining the world, of researching it obsessively and explaining it, and, you know, and fitting it into a narrative that makes it compelling. I, I actually have not read Cryptonomicon. That's one of the, his books that I kind of skipped over, maybe because it was like one of his first really, really, really thick books. Fat. It's, There's a lot it's of pages a, in that book. It's fat as hell. Um, yeah, and so like you know, I kind of was not really ready for that, so I missed that one. But um, but it's cool to know that he did that. I might I might have to check it out now. But uh, his his character is absolutely right that like you know not every tea should be made at boiling. It, they just shouldn't. Um, the reason for that is that different ex- different water temperatures extract different compounds from within the tea leaves. And so uh, to make this really gettable, green tea is one of the most easy uh, varieties to kind of like ruin with bad water temperature. So everyone who's ever, you know, drank a lot of tea is going to have had horribly bitter green tea at some point in their lives, if not at every point in their lives, Um, because green tea contains a lot of chlorophyll. That's what makes it green. Chlorophyll is the compound in plants that photosynthesizes, photosynthesizes sunlight into, you know, uh, material that the plant can run on. And so the chlorophyll, uh, the chlorophyll is incredibly bitter. It's very, very bitter. And it, it, and you will extract chlorophyll from the tea if you're brewing it at boiling. Uh, but if you bring the water temperature down to about 80 C or 175 Fahrenheit, you get to a water temperature where you can extract all of the tasty flavor compounds from the tea without extracting too much chlorophyll. And then you get a nice, delicious, kind of slightly sweet, grassy green tea that's really, really pleasant. Um, but, you know, that's just one of the compounds that, you know, you where water temperature has a big influence over whether or not you're getting a flavor that you don't want. Um, similarly, uh, more oxidized teas like black teas, oolongs, etc., um, have 
tannic compounds that have, you know, a little bit of a bitter or kind of like, you know, mouth puckering. Tannic? Tannins. So you might be familiar with the term tannins from wine. Uh, tannins. Tannins, exactly. So tannic is an adjective version is of Is different than tonic? Correct. Um, so, and really what that comes down to is bitterness in a way. Um, and so if you are brewing your black teas with off-boil water, you'll extract less of those bitter tannins, and you'll have a kind of like milder, sweeter-tasting uh, tea at the end. Um, so, you know, some teas really do benefit from a strong boil, especially if you're going to be making a black tea with milk and sugar, kind of like British style. Like, yes, definitely make it with fully boiling water, but if you're making a really high-quality, single-origin Chinese black tea, don't use the boiling water. It'll over-extract it. It'll end up bitter. And, you know, like, you know, it's better to taste it uh, a little bit, uh, like, you know, at a more ideal extraction. Um, and so a lot of the, like, you know, we currently offer a tea called In the Mood for Love, which is a, uh, a Kimo and Malfeng uh, black tea that really tastes best at around 190 or about 90 C. And if you brew that tea at full boil, you'll get much more much more uh, kind of tannic compounds and it'll be much more bitter and you'll completely miss the lovely malty silky mouthfeel that you get from brewing it a little bit below boil. So, I mean, Stevenson was right as usual. I mean, he's a great researcher. <laughs> uh, and, you know, every tea, you know, I mean, for whatever your palate is and whatever, you know, an individual's palate is, every tea has its uh, a temperature where it's going to taste its best. This discussion, um, has me wondering, like, what are you kind of adding to your teas when you have these complex blends? And those other ingredients, how does the temperature of water affect them? One thing that we get asked often is about, you know, do you cold brew teas? Cold brew coffee is like a huge trend at the moment. And I mean, you know, 10 years ago it wasn't. Um, but people ask us frequently, like, oh, what are your instructions for cold brewing tea? And we generally don't recommend it. Um, and that's because so many of our teas are blended and have non-tea ingredients that won't necessarily extract at low temperatures. Um, so, you know, for example, some of our teas include caramel. And, you know, caramel, of course, like, you know, it's a, it's a crystallized sugar. You know, you need a little bit of temperature to, you know, to actually get that to dissolve and integrate into the tea. Um, I mean, if you've ever tried to add like granulated sugar to an iced coffee, you know, it just sits at the bottom. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't have that in a lot of our teas, but that's just one example of an ingredient that like will really only extract with a higher temperature. Um, that said, generally speaking, the non-tea ingredients that we use in our blends, like, you know, just to list a few like vanilla, lemongrass, orange slices, um, dragon fruit, uh, olive leaf, all of those things, um, do kind of rely on temperature in order to release their flavor. And so, uh, there's, there's a range at which they taste good and maybe at which they stop tasting good. And we tend to test our blends, you know, not so much at the individual ingredient level, but at the composite level. So, you know, we're not sitting there like, with a, a sample of olive leaf, testing the olive leaf at like 100C, 90C, 80C, or tasting the whole blend at different temperatures to figure out where everything is, is at its best. 
Okay, so Gina has an idea for a tea. Yes. She sends it to the kitchen. To Germany. <laughs> they send back, we think this is what you want. And then you guys try it at various temperatures and see if it is indeed what you want. Mm-hmm. If it is, okay, green light. If it's not, make some adjustments, try again. And then... Or... Or cancel. What kind of percentage of failures do you have? Hmm. It's hard to say. It kind of depends on the on the batch. Um, sometimes the, the failure percentage is really, really low, like, you know, 20% or less. Sometimes it's really high. Um, it just depends on what what we're kind of exploring at that moment. What's the worst thing that you've ever been sent from the factory, and how did it taste? God. <laughs> Come on, the worst one. I'm, I'm, uh, let me think, let me think. The most failed experiment. I'm going to demur a little bit on this one and just say that, you know, we've had some things that kind of like tasted like what you would imagine it would be like to drink the extract of potpourri. (laughs) All right. You know, you just don't want that. You just don't want that. Very perfumey. Yeah. Well, or just like, you know, like perfumey but in a way where you're like I shouldn't this shouldn't be in my mouth <laughs> yeah no like spraying perfume into your mouth yeah 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 totally totally I mean and, and, you know it's not it, it's 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 an occupational hazard it's not kind of like the fault of anybody in particular it's just sometimes sometimes some things get combined that shouldn't be combined but you don't have any specific ingredients that were a bad suggest a bad uh, combination. Well, uh, you know, we have had some ingredients that are um, that we've had to learn to retire in a way because, uh, you know, like we found that certain ingredients just don't have the shelf life that we need. I mean, tea, the tea itself lasts a really long time, Um, you know, from production to like kind of the best buy date. You have a, a couple of years where it will still taste excellent. But, um, but you know, we found that some blends that rely on very specific, like, hero ingredients, don't. sometimes those hero ingredients don't last as long as the tea does. And, you know, we've been, you know, we've learned from our mistakes, and, you know, this is an experimental process for everybody. Was that through customer feedback that you discovered that, or was were you drinking your, uh, eating your own dog food, as it were? <laughs> both, both. Um, we drink our own tea every day, and we're, you know, it's, uh, I mean, we don't make anything that we don't love and that we don't want to have in our own home. So, I mean, you know, it's very much like a personal product. It's something that we make to please ourselves as well as, you know, everybody else. But, um, but then, you know, also like sometimes when we have, sometimes we've, you know, like we'll get a a note of feedback from a customer where, you know, they say something's really off and then that'll alert us to go test it and make sure that everything's fine. Um, and some, you know, there have been a few cases where we've actually been like, "Oh, wow, this one doesn't taste right anymore," and then that's when we've had to retire a blend. And sometimes that happens. Um, you know, the part of what we do is to kind of like break new ground and make teas that nobody's ever made before. And you know, sometimes they're not perfect. Then you know, we have to kind of like sometimes we have to like stop making them and maybe come back and try again. A customer that kind of brings that to your attention you think that type of customer is going to stick around 
Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that's a great question. You know? Sure, it totally does. I mean, you know, somebody who's had a bad experience and told us about it. Well, I mean, I hope so. Um, either way, that person has done us a favor by taking the time to communicate that they had a bad experience with our product. Because, you know, I mean, that's, you know, people are are giving us, like, they're taking their time to give us feedback, which is incredibly valuable because, I mean, everybody's busy. Everybody's got a lot going on in their lives. And, um, you know, it's, it is, uh, it's vital when people tell us about things like that. And we really try to let them know how much we value their feedback, even when it's negative, because, you know, they're, they're the, they're kind of the, the life of the company in a way. Um, so we really try to encourage people to communicate with us at, at any point and with any kind of feedback, whether it's positive or negative or neutral. I welcome constructive feedback and I give a lot of constructive feedback. If I go to a restaurant and I'm not happy, if I think that the French toast is off from the previous time and I'm, especially if I'm friends with the owner, I'll definitely kind of give honest feedback. And uh, sometimes the people I'm with, maybe my girlfriend, they'll be like, why do you always have to be nosy? And as a designer, I'm like, well, if it was my restaurant, I would want to know, hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, so I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> um, however, I had like, with, uh, with my Switchbag project, I had a lot of feedback, hmm. mostly positive some constructive, but I had one customer that no matter what I did, I couldn't satisfy their expectations. Yeah. So other than constructive feedback, do you have feedback that's essentially bitching and nothing you can, there's nothing you can do to actually rectify the situation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think when you're dealing with the general public, which we do, you know, running direct to consumer brand, brands, when, when you're dealing with the general public, you're always going to find people who are, who are so deeply unhappy with their experience that there's nothing you can do to make it right for them. Um, and sometimes people are, you know, but, but in, when, in the initial moment of contact, I've learned that it is not always easy to discern whether somebody is just really upset and frustrated or if somebody is totally irreconcilably, there's no nothing you can do. So um, we have a customer service culture of <laughs> of very extreme patience at August because we have a lot of people. Um, you know, I mean, we communicate with people sometimes on Facebook ads or via Facebook Messenger, and like you know, people are angry on Facebook. You know, it's a, it's a, like, there's a lot of people who are like very vitriolic and there's a lot of trolling and a lot of angry, you know, upset people in general. Um, and, you know, sometimes people will express their frustration and anger in a very glib and, and unbelievably direct way. And, you know, we have to, we have to be like, okay, okay, <laughs> we're getting negative feedback. Let's like, calm down ourselves before responding and try to understand how we can help the person because frequently their frustration is is something that we can do something about sometimes people are not happy with the product they bought and in many cases we refund their money 
um, because that's part of, you know, that's, we, we guarantee people's satisfaction. If they don't like the tea, if, if they try it and they don't like it, okay, fine. You know, we give them their money back. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, we, we want to make it easy for people to try our stuff. And, you know, if people are having, if they don't like the way it tastes, sometimes we'll offer brewing tips if they're interested in getting them. Um, sometimes people get very frustrated because the postal service is having trouble and the order hasn't arrived on time. Um, there are all kinds of reasons people are frustrated and we really, really try to like de-escalate ourselves first so that we can kind of untangle the difficult emotions because sometimes people are really, uh, sometimes people have trouble asking for exactly what they want when they're really upset. And so, uh, you know, we try to be extremely patient and then occasionally we have a person who is just never going to be anything but mad and then, you know, we just try to find a way to um, to end the conversation gracefully and just step away. Uh, it's, uh, the, the customer service aspect of, uh, of a direct-to-consumer business is incredibly important, and we've really had to learn a lot as we've grown. At this point, I mean, I'm sure at the beginning, you and Gina must have done... 100% of the uh, customer service replies. I still do 100% of mm. any Seifu customer service replies. Mm. But do you guys still directly do it now, or do you have somebody in charge of that stuff? We do. We still work on it. Um, Gina, more than I, um, Gina has really taken on, uh, as we've started to grow, a lot more of the customer relationships as well as kind of like being very much the kind of like culture lead within the company as the staff's grown. So she's the one who's like making cool things happen for our employees and kind of like, you know, helping to like have everybody doing cool stuff. That's not just, you know, the busy work that we do every day. Um, so she's really the kind of like mastermind behind like how we engage with the customer. Um, but sorry, I just completely like lost my train of thought. Could you could you ask me your original question again? Oh, you're, uh, oh right. If who's we're still who's doing handling it. customer Thank service? You. Yeah. So so Gina's the architect of the customer service and has written a lot of the like she kind of has defined the kind of style and the language that we use. But everyone in the company works on it. So right now we are a team of six, seven very soon, and everybody takes a turn. And so we, the, and the reason why we do that is so a Gina and I stay engaged because Even like the warehouse managers, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, we, all of the people that we hire are awesome. Like we're wait, logistically, how do you actually have people take a turn with customer service? Okay, so we uh, well, let me let me get to that next okay. because I want to I want to kind of like talk a little bit more about why we rotate and like you know um, why it's important to do that. So. We rotate because it can't be just one person. You know, you'd get kind of numb and like, you know, would become very kind of, um, you know, you would get kind of numb to people's needs and, you know, you would get very mechanical in your replies and all that stuff. And I think it would be very difficult for somebody to do it all day long every day. I'm sure people do, but, you know, we don't have somebody with the talent to do that well uh, or the background. Um, and so, and of course, Gina and I, who like, you know, we're, we're the ones who started it off, uh, you know, our bandwidth is getting narrower and narrower for doing things like that. Um, but the reason why we think it's really important to, for everyone to touch the customer service part of the company is because 
it is the place where you hear all of the stories of joy and all of the stories of pain from our customers. And it helps you to connect to the real people who are buying our tea and to hear their stories. And, you know, when you're working in a, you know, a warehouse where you're just, you know, bringing product in and shipping product out. And, you know, I mean, that's what we do just like our employees. It, it's alienating. It's not like working in a retail store where, uh, or a tea bar or, you know, where, where you can put a product in front of somebody and watch their expression change when they drink it. You, you, you need that connection. You need to form that connection with the customer and you need to be in contact with them in order to, you know, just understand the impact you're having in the world. Um, so part of our culture of like sharing the responsibility for customer service is to actually connect with real people who are our customers and not just to kind of have that be some somebody's responsibility, like off in a cubicle somewhere. Um, so that's the, the ethos behind it. Um, the practicality of it is that, you know, we use some software to a ticket management software that uh, handles all of our incoming email uh, and like Facebook Messenger, uh, you know, kind of contacts from customers and, you know, associates that data with their customer account. So whenever anybody emails us, we know right in the same window, like what their last order was and which items they want, they bought and all that stuff. So, um, so basically we, we use some software to make that process a multi-user process and also to make it one where it's very deeply integrated with our with the e-commerce side of the software. So it's not like, you know, just a shared Gmail inbox or something. Do you mind sharing what that software is and also yeah. what other tools you use to organize your company? Well, that, you know, that one specifically is called Gorgeous, but uh, the spelling is a little weird. It's G-O-R-G-I-A-S. And uh, it is, I believe, built specifically for Shopify. So if you're a Shopify merchant, Gorgeous is um, amazing. And it's a fairly new platform uh, that uh, basically like integrates really deeply with your customer data and allows you to, um, you know. It's considered a CRM. Do you know that? Uh, I think you could call it that. Yeah. We just lost our key light. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder why. That was some nice stuff. We had some nice. Maybe they're. It looks like they're closing. Do you, think, yeah. do you want to get another beer before? Yeah, I think they're done. Do you want more? Let's an- get another beer somewhere else. Somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. Kampai time. Kampai. 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 So this is the second time that we uh, have we've, been we've accosted by, yes. or made friends. We've made friends. You know, one person's making friends is another person's being accosted. Mm. We're in the right neighborhood for that. あの、英語を話しますか英語話せません。日本人はあまり英語を話しません。日本語を勉強したいです。うん。日本語もっと上手になりたいです。頑張れ。ありがとうございます。乾杯。乾杯。We are talking about software tools. You finished talking us about uh telling us about Gorgeous the gorgeous system for Shopify merchants. I'll look into that. Do you use any other tools to help your team coalesce? Uh, team team chat is on Slack. Um, super helpful just because otherwise we'd be relying on email or text messages. Um, we rely really heavily on an inventory management system called Deer. That's uh, a like really inexpensive but super versatile one that 
uh, just allows us to understand a lot about our product costing and inventory velocity and all that kind of stuff. Is that spelled D-E-A-R? Exactly, yeah. Based in New Zealand. It's like it's the kind of software that you would have had to have bought from Oracle 20 years ago for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and now it's a few hundred bucks a month. Oh. So it's awesome. Although very hard to use. The problem uh, normally with Slack or Trello or whatever, any like online team system is if your team's not actually using it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Adherence is super important. But, you know, I mean, we're all in one building, so it's not that hard. Oh, so are you guys located, co-located in your warehouse? Yeah, yeah, we're all in the same place. Well, that's cool. How's Japan? J Japan's awesome. <laughs> I love Japan. I tried to come here a lot. Why? Why? Um... Because it's a different world. The culture is so different. Atmosphere is so different. People so different. Food so different. Uh, you know, it's just, it's refreshing. Japanese food, like it? It's my favorite. I think we've hit the omega point. <laughs> this is as good as it's going to get. It's as good as it's going to get. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to me okay. ramble. Well, okay, we talked a lot about tea. That's cool. We talked about tea. A lot of interesting stuff there. Um, we didn't talk much about this current Japan trip. Like, we just touched on it very briefly at the very beginning, and I wouldn't mind talking about it a little bit more before we run out of tape here. Okay, I'm going to give you the two-minute version. Okay. So, for a couple of years, my mother has wanted to hike the Kumano Kodo Pilgrimage Trail, which is in the Key Peninsula. And it goes from temple to temple to temple. It's an old Shinto pilgrimage trail. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it really feels like a totally ancient primordial part of the country. Um, and so we've been trying to plan this for a while. So we did a five-day itinerary hiking from temple to temple through the deepest woods. And it was totally magical. It was amazing. Super uh, challenging physically. Uh, sometimes we had more than a thousand meters of elevation change in one day, usually about uh, 10 miles a day of hiking. But amazing, amazing, totally amazing. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, how many days was the total uh, hiking trip? Uh, I would say three days of very heavy hiking and then two more days of lighter hiking and, you know, with more buses involved. Well, it was cool that you came to Japan. You know, I got your message a few months ago, saying you're going to come to Japan in September. It'd be great if we could meet up. Here we are, meeting up. This is it. It happened. This is the meeting. It happened. By the way, we've known each other since fifth grade, so, you know. Or fourth grade, or something like something that. Something like that. I don't the, know the exactly. The day we met, you shot an arrow straight up in the air, and it, about 40 seconds later, it landed at the roof of your house 10 feet away from us. I will never forget that day. <laughs> right. Well, this has been another episode of the Design Exchange Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Thomas Grovey. And my guest today was Aaron Shin. Thank you. Of August Uncommon Tea. You can find out more about their tea company at august.la or on Instagram at August Uncommon. Thank you very much. And see you later. Thank you. You do it. You press the button. You have a little like time here, a video for the like next the credits. Like the, the button to click to the next oh, video right, right, on, yeah. on very, YouTube. Very important. <laughs>